Peter Astrid Kane is a freelance journalist and communications manager at SF Pride. Their work has appeared in The Guardian, 48 Hills, The SF Bay Times, The SF Examiner, SF Gate, The Infatuation, and The San Francisco Chronicle, among other outlets. From 2015 to 2019, Peter Astrid worked for SF Weekly, ultimately becoming its editor in 2017. On September 14th, in response to the news that SF Weekly would be shutting down for an indefinite hiatus, Peter Astrid wrote a farewell column for 48 Hills about SF Weekly's legacy and what it was like to be the leader of a newsroom where resources kept dwindling every year. Peter Astrid, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, it's my pleasure, really. Well, I wanted uh, to begin uh, with you telling us what it was like joining SF Weekly back in 2015. I understand you joined as the arts editor. What was the paper like at that point? And what sort of audience did it serve so our listeners can paint a picture for themselves uh you know what 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 sort of paper this this was yeah sure um to put it bluntly when i joined the paper was in a state of chaos um the previous staff had pretty much it wasn't like everybody quit at once in a so-called suicide pact i I hate that term but that's what it is um but over the past the, the prior few weeks they pretty much all bailed one by one. This is several months after the San Francisco media company, the parent company had had owned the Bay Guardian as well as the Examiner. Then they bought the Weekly and then killed off the Bay Guardian. And then in January of 2015, maybe February, they unceremoniously axed the very well-liked editor at the time, Brandon Reynolds, And then by March, most of the remaining staff had gone or had given notice. And I started on March 31st, 2015. And you are correct. I was the arts editor. And that title hides a little bit of what I did. So there had been a culture editor and a food editor. They laid off the culture editor and basically told the food editor, like, you're doing culture now. And she was like, I'm not letting you double my workload. Peace out. And so she bailed. And then I was one of her freelancers. I had been writing for the paper for two and a half years as a freelancer by that point. And, you know, the new editor, Mark Kemp, was like, hey, Anna, Anna Roth quit. Like, would you be interested in this job? And I'm like, oh, you mean I get to do everything? Like, hell yeah. Like, I want to do that. So, I mean, I had to, I had to formally interview. I, I, I assume there were other candidates, um, but I got it. And then there, a music editor came on one day later. So we had a functioning staff. How big was the team at this point in 2015? So there were five or six people. Um, so there was Mark, the editor, me, the arts editor. There was a shortly to be a staff writer, Julia Carey Wong, who is now a, an absolute titan at The Guardian. Um, there was an art director and a news editor so what is that five there there were between five and six people kind of for the next couple of years um but we were pretty much all new um audrey who was the art director was the lone repository of institutional knowledge and though she was an amazing colleague and a really talented art director she's not a journalist so 
there was kind of a very harsh limit imposed on us about like, you know, if we were trying to think of cover stories, we would have to do very diligent research to make sure it wasn't something that had been done in like 2013. So, and on that subject, you know, I, one of the things that I very quickly made sure that we did is have ideas for the cover kind of as far into the future as possible, because there's nothing more stressful than trying to do like you have this week's cover sorted but not the next one or the one after that and that's how it was when we started like our first couple of editorial meetings were just like i mean we were just the collective stress was just so high because it was like we have to come up with some three thousand word either one story or a package of stories that represents that length and it has to be the caliber of a cover story it has to be reported out it has to be in depth and i mean it was like the first five five issues that came out were like just the scrappiest of of scrappy things i mean there are, you know there are a couple of holdovers that had been scheduled before but it was really really hard and it's hard i think you know people should know it's hard to it's hard to do that with a team of 15 people it's even harder to do it with a team of five and uh you you mentioned in your so you you wrote this piece for 48 hills to talk about the death of sf weekly um or you know it says it's going to be on indefinite height the the owners say indefinite hiatus doesn't sound like there's much hope for it to be revived you mentioned your column um that you devoted a lot of time and energy as you know you'd ultimately become editor you would you devoted a lot of time and energy to the paper um, putting out 52 issues uh, a year. What is it like to be at a paper that, you know, over the years, the resources sort of dwindle further and further? What was the environment like o- over the years? And I'm sure there were positive things too, and I want to hear that as as well, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I do. Let me just preface it by saying the number of positive things was, was off the charts. This was the best job I will ever have. I can't even imagine a better job ever coming to me. But it was so hard like you know yeah for most of the, that first couple of years yeah we had five or six people then it was for the final two years i was there it was four and so you know if you have one person who's the music editor they're not just doing music you have to, everyone has to do way more than what your title suggests that you're doing and so that was kind of awesome because it allowed you know you just hear of people feeling pigeonholed and boxed into covering a very narrow beat and after a while you get bored and so we were all kind of spared there was never a boring moment but like you know yeah getting cranking out 52 issues a year is just really really difficult and we were doing so not merely in a time of constrained resources but ever diminishing resources and psychologically like that can be really difficult you know um morale is a fragile thing and i feel like there are many things that i'm terrible at but i'm going to brag a little bit and say that one thing i'm good at is keeping morale up on a team that feels beleaguered you know whether it's just like complimenting people buying them beer making them feel like they're really smart like there's just things you can do as a manager to keep people from burning out and quitting and hating you and i i am proud that the core team that was working with me when I became editor kind of stuck around. I mean, there was a lot of turnover. Mark Kemp was the was the editor. He did not last very long. He's a wonderful guy, but he was not there long. And then they they had two co-editors, both of one one of whom quit and the other one got laid off. 
And then for the summer of 2016, there was effectively no editor with the understanding being that I was responsible for the well-being of SF Weekly, but not really authorized to do anything. <laughs> like, Just like, don't mess it up, but you're not really the editor was how that worked. And then they brought on yet another person who lasted six months. And then after that, they were like, okay, it's officially your problem now. It's your time to shine. <laughs> right. So I'm like, did I get this job or did I merely outlast all the other schmucks who came along and flamed out? And they were like, all right, well, I guess we just got to give it to you now. Um, but I mean, I, I stuck with it for another two and a half years, right? I, I, I became the editor in March of 2017 and I left in July of 2019. Uh, and I only took one week off that entire time and it was to officiate my childhood best friend's wedding so that was planned before i got the promotion and i remember driving around new england <clears throat> in june of 2017 and my my man and i went to watch the sunrise on cadillac mountain in maine which is where the first i don't it may not be true but or su- seasonally it's where the first rays of sunshine hit the united states and so in June and Maine, the sun is up at like 4.45. So we're like, saw the sunshine, or saw the sunrise, went right back down the mountain. And I'm like editing, you know, the sex column in the Bar Harbor town square on the public Wi-Fi. And I'm like, this is, this is absolutely ridiculous. But like, that was my one vacation. Um, but again, like, you know, it's my the budgets would go down and it would be like there are all these promises they're like this is just temporary and we're str- we're trying a new advertising strategy and we're about to land this big client and it's like you you don't want to you don't want to give into the cynicism but like you know it's not true like the problems affecting one alt weekly are not that one paper's problems this is an industry wide contraction so let's just pretend to enjoy it <laughs> but yeah so, so the it was about a week ago that uh, it was announced that SF Weekly was going to go on uh, indefinite hiatus. What was your reaction? It sounds like you were in the middle of writing a column, a new a new column, right for 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 the paper, and you got the news. What was your reaction? And I want to add on top of that to that question. What do you think the longer term effects of SF not having any all weekly anymore? What do you think they're going to be? All right. Well, those are the two biggest questions of all. I will I will try to answer them in, as thoroughly as I can. Um, first of all, my 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 reaction to hearing the news that SF Weekly was going on indefinite hiatus was very uncomplicated. It just made me sad. It's just it just it's sad. It's simply sad. Um, I am my my immediate thought turned to like, well, damn, like we did the fucking best we could for as long as we could. And nobody thought that it would last this long. I mean, when COVID happened and they stopped printing for months, I was like, well, this is this is it. Like, it's unsurprising that this national tragedy will sweep the legs Finally, once and for all, out from under the weekly, nope, it kept on going for a year and a half, you know? So, like, when the end came, like, yeah, depressing as hell, but, like, damn, it was just, what a plucky little paper. Um, and, yes, like, I, 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 didn't, I have not done much freelance writing this summer. Uh, just my day job, like, kind of peaks in June, and then 
I talked to my boss and letting me work remotely for most of July, so I was out of town for most of the month, and then whatever. So I haven't done much freelance writing, let alone for SF Weekly in several months. And so right before Labor Day, I was like all set to like recommit. I'm like, I sent Nick Veronin, the outgoing editor of the Weekly. I sent him all these pitches, and I'm like, what do you have? What's, like, let's talk about Outside Lands. And the first thing I did, he wanted me to start uh, an LGBTQ column, and I was like, oh, absolutely, like hell yeah. And I'm like, I want to come out swinging, so I, I want to do, I want to write like kind of a takedown of something, but then that story became much more involved than I thought, and I was like, okay, well, I want to shelve that for like October, and for September, like, is it cool with you if I write a thing about like being non-binary and what that means and how that's going? And he was like, oh, that's a great idea. So I spent most of Labor Day weekend writing and deleting and rewriting this thousand word column on on a subject that's very personal to me and personal essays don't flow out of me they're i find them very difficult personal things are i mean so, you know if if it's really like something that punches you in the gut you can maybe it, it just comes right out of you but like for the most part writing about my feelings is not my strong suit so my the the point of saying this is that i labored on this thing that now is probably not going to see the light of day um, which, whatever, that's a common, that happens in journalism all the time. But under these particular circumstances, I think that that's a shame. Um, but to your other question about what does it mean that San Francisco, which is like, you know, the alt-weekliest town, is now has gone from two to zero in a seven-year period, right? Because the Bay Guardian, I think, was killed off in October 2014. So, uh, I mean, the best way to answer that question to me is like, just look at the shit show that's going on right now. Um, I, I look at City Hall, right? There is an ongoing concurrent series of overlapping scandals and scandalettes that like started with the Department of Public Works where, you know, the boss was actually dating the current mayor at one point and like these, the financial misdeeds like extended to a Pride Parade float, by the way, my day job is the communications manager of San Francisco Pride, and we found this whole thing very amusing, um, and like her car, and it's just like, this kind of scandal is not some like boring accounting thing. It's like a hilarious scandal with like very easy to understand components, but in the aggregate, there's a lot going on, and I'm like, oh my god, if there's something more tailor-made for an alt-weekly to tackle and pound again and again for like week after week, it is this. It is this thing. I mean, it, you know, we know the FBI is involved. I think the matter has you know, cooled down a little bit. And but, like, but there'd be some great there'd be some great covers to to be had. I imagine it's. A, I mean, you probably know. Like the more journalism you do, the more you start thinking like a journalist, right? Like poorly written copy when you're reading it, whether it just be like just something you're reading, whether professionally or not, you just start line editing it in your mind scandals like this you just start formulating like a lead images a graphic you know just like it's just the way your brain is trained to think and you can't approach news like this without coming at it from that angle so there have been some times and i'm like oh yeah that like oh that'd be a clever headline for this one yeah well on the topic of the of the city needing an all weekly which i agree um i wanted to get into a point that you made in your piece for 48 Hills. So you you said that all weeklies aren't, and I quote, uncomplicated 
victims who did their plucky best. And I love, I like, I love that, uh, that, that, that plucky, I'm going to add plucky to my, my vocabulary. And for the folks who haven't read the column yet, you were referring to their, you know, alt weeklies as a whole, their overall lack of diversity in this case. And one topic that has come up on this podcast um, is that if a newspaper wants to survive, it, you know, the obvious thing to say is, oh, it needs good finances or it needs good financial backing. But something that I've spoken with people uh, on this podcast is that it actually needs two other things that are, that are really important and that I think speak to that sentence that you you brought up um, and this overall point you're trying to make is that it needs community buy-in first and then it also needs to properly reflect the community that uh, it's covering uh, as well. And I'm wondering, do you think that SF Weekly had community buy-in and do you think that it properly uh, uh, you know reflected the the community it was serving this question has never not gnawed at me um, I I want to say that we did based on the feedback that we got but it was never satisfying and I never felt like it was adequate there do you remember the Oscars so white campaign was that 2016 give or take a year um that point you know my my then editor was like oh SF Weekly so white and I'm like well yeah it it is uh it was a four-fifth white at that time and you know, when I became editor, I, I had the opportunity to make three hires and I hired a queer white woman and two straight women of color. And I, I have kind of grown a little bit sour on the concept of diversity because I feel like it still centers whiteness implicitly and it's, it's not giving marginalized communities, particularly people of color, full agency it's like the, like the act of centering, even the act of centering non-white voices still presumes that there is a white person, often a white man, doing the act of centering. And I'm like, that still feels inadequate. And I don't mean to get like bogged down in the language here, but like, I, I just, this question consumed me at times. And, you know, I, I, the work stood for itself, right? Like, I believe that we covered a very diverse city on a shoestring staff with a very small suite of freelancers. We did not, we were in no position to do so comprehensively. But I believe that we were able to write credibly and compassionately and simply well about numerous constituencies and the concerns that they face. When we were doing a series of once a month neighborhood profiles, one of, you know, one of my favorites, my favorite ones were the ones about outlying neighborhoods that don't get 
that don't get uh, reported on as much. I don't know if you ever noticed, this is, a, this is a, a tick that journalists in San Francisco have that drives me up the wall, is when they'll say something happened in Bernal Heights, but then out in the Portola, out in is a, a phrase that I cannot stand because it has this like center periphery thing going. And I'm like, Bernal Heights and the Portola are one neighborhood apart. If, if people aren't from San Francisco, like they're adjacent neighborhoods. They are separated by a major interstate freeway. And culturally, they are very, very different. But like the idea that one is out and one is in drives me up the wall. And you hear this a lot of like with East Oakland or the sunset or whatever, like the deep sunset. And I I have a, a I maintain a list of cliches and other no-nos that I I'm always free to share, always happy to share with journalists, but people who I work with, I'm like, we just, it's not that this is my, my list of commandments and you must obey them, but like, these are the things that I have accumulated over time that um, are good habits or things to always keep in mind. And one of those, one of the criteria or one of the goals or values of what we're keeping in mind is exactly what you said, community buy-in. If you speak about people in ways that register with them, they will continue to read you. And if you sound like a dipshit or like a very clumsy person or, you know, like, let's just be perfectly frank, like a, a guilty white liberal who doesn't know a thing about anything and you're trying to like write some story on the fly, it's just, it's immediately going to seem like the BS that it is. And if you don't have good sources and you don't cultivate community connections, the work will invariably suffer. Mm -hmm. And so for us to do what we did and get the reactions that we did, and if I may brag a little bit, win the awards that we did, like that to me was a slight reassurance that like this one, one little outlet was like doing its best and doing it well. Well, I am definitely going to think about my my use of words now saying out there because because uh, I've definitely been guilty of of that one. It's a little hard not. It's it's hard, right? It's it's hard to because yeah, it's also the fact that, it, that San Francisco is a square, so we like think you know okay, there's a center point to it. But I, I wanted to move on to like what this the the what the closure of SF Weekly may do to young journalists. Um, I, I, I want to uh, quote a tweet from Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, a journalist at KQED. So he said, he tweeted this in response to SF Weekly's closure. He said, all weeklies were a training ground for new reporters, a lower risk place. They could cut their teeth and get trained before going on to bigger platforms if they chose to do so. Nothing has really replaced that pipeline. Do you, what are your thoughts on, on this tweet? Like, do, do you agree with Joe on this? I'm going to agree with my delightful former colleague, Joe, about 80% of the way. Um, I, the, the substance of what he's saying is absolutely true. Like, you're not going to, oftentimes, you're not going to get a job at, like, a peak institution of journalism right out of college or in your 20s or whatever. You got to start somewhere. I don't I don't know that like SF Weekly and Alt Weeklies are necessarily where you start start because I think you need to be at least have some level of competence before getting there, but like he what he's saying is true. Like pretty much a lot of like the people at the apex of the profession started at papers just like SF Weekly and the Bay Guardian or East Bay Express. 
And it is a shame that there kind of isn't something that replaced them to come along. Although I would say that like community, like nonprofits and community driven outlets, Mission Local being a really good example and uh, Oakland, Oakland side and Berkeley side and East Bay being also wonderful examples are kind of filling that void quite a bit, but it's not entirely the same because print, having a print product forces you to adhere to deadlines and take on, you know, aspects of journalism that online only outlets don't really have to worry about, like layout and word count and whatever. Like if, if you're told like you got to cut 200 words out of this and you need to do it in the next 15 minutes, like if you're, that that doesn't really happen as much anymore. There, yeah, there. I would I would also add on to that too. There, when I used to work at a my student newspaper, uh, my advisor, she would talk about how over the years there were suggestions by the administration to get rid of the local, or excuse me, to get rid of the paper version that was. You know, there's these boxes all around campus, and I think that something that's also important is that physical presence too of it being there and you know the examiner boxes are still going to have a paper right there but that sf weekly one is going to be empty and there is something about that physical that physical presence of a of a newspaper being there as opposed to somewhere in the the ether i mean (laughs) Seeing, I, I, I will never forget the feeling of my first cover story, which was in April of 2014. And it was about the gradual disappearance of, of gay bars in San Francisco and nationwide. And, you know, biking around town and seeing the boxes with my work and my name on them was probably the, it was one of the top three happiest days of my entire life. It was just like such indisputable proof that I could do this and like, like here it was you know if I ever had it if I of course self-doubt afflicts you throughout life but like until then you know you're just like ooh, am I good enough can I really do this and then you're like you know here here is the proof it is all over San Francisco and I'm seeing it every place and I I did not study journalism in school so I did not write for a student paper um, but I imagine it's very much the same thing like and it's not that these things should exist solely to stroke the ego of the contributors but like yes I believe that something is irretrievably lost like print media forever is just I should get a tattooed around my collarbone. Like I I am a proponent. You, I have a stack of New Yorkers in my house that is like super thick. I don't know whether that's because I love print media or I, I'm not. I don't read it enough. I don't know. But like I will never ever get rid of that subscription. I am a diehard print fan. Like I spend all my day reading things on screens just like everybody else. But like print, 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 and I, I think that there is something that we're, we're, you know, something ineffable that we're at risk of losing forever. I know that's not an original idea. Many people have said that before. Well, speaking of other outlets, I my last question for you. Well, actually, my second to last question for you. I want to talk about where we go from here. So there are now no alt week alt weeklies left, um, and. An observation I wanted to make before posing this question for you is that when I think of a lot of the new startups that have recently been launched in the past couple years, you know, I think of Berkeley side, Oakland side, which is under the umbrella of city side. Um, I think of a recently newly started outlet like Hearsay Media. Um, And then I think of the 
you know, I'm going to preface this with possible the possible revival of the examiner. Um, and, and, and when I think of these newer projects that have started, um, there's a pattern among them and it's that they lean more on sort of like the straight news reporting spectrum. And that obviously there are exceptions like 48 Hills, um, you know, and, and, and to a certain extent, Mission Local, it's kind of a, Mission Local is a little hard to put on, on, on this, on the, uh, on the uh, spectrum here. Um, but my question for you is this, is do you think that with startup news outlets, do you think that the future for them is this kind of more straight news reporting, investigative style reporting, or do you think there is room for something like an SF Weekly to reappear? Do you think the community wants this, or is this the end of the alt-weekly era? Um, this is as much a business question as an editorial one, and I, I, the business side, like, you know, some things rained down to me over time, but I, I don't know that I'm qualified to offer a, a very good answer about the financial thing, and I, I think this is very much a financial question. So anything I would say would just be speculative. But um, on the editorial side, I don't know. I, I, I think I need to admit to myself that the era may be over. Um, I love 48 Hills. I love their mission. I, full disclosure, I am a, an occasional contributor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, there have been people with really good intentions and a lot of money flinging tons of cash at journalistic startups for a very long time, for like 25 years. And, you know, things like Salon, which is like the OG internet, you know, the OG like online news magazine, are still around and still doing really quality work. Like Salon right now is following like the, the sort of online extreme right in a really, really great, compelling way. Um, and I, th- I think if they find their niche, whether that be geographical or by subject matter, then you're halfway there, right? Like that's, that's a good path to longevity. Um, I do think that this world is a graveyard of naive but well-intentioned people who thought they had that secret sauce and then it turns out it was mayonnaise left out in the sun and it didn't really work for very long. But like, I, I also... As much as I want to give it up for places that last a long time, um, you know, I feel like if something has a three-year run or a five-year run, it's not, it's stupid to call it a failure. Like, you know, yes, the examiner found it in 1865. Like, when, if and when that eventually closes, and I am really, really wishing everyone who works there, like, the very best. If, if the strategy of closing SF Weekly was to shore up the examiner in perpetuity, then, like, I can make my peace with that. Because I would love for the examiner to thrive. But, like, if something established in 1865 goes under, that feels like, you know, a dagger to our collective hearts. But if something that was established in 2014 fizzles out you know, it gets written off as just like some dumb fly-by-night idea. But that could mean that they have produced quality work for six or seven years. And I I don't think we should just dismiss that. I mean, yes, you want people to have job security. You want people to build credibility. You want institutional longevity. But like, 
journalists, uh, let's go with the word of the day. The journalists are a plucky sort. And if you work someplace for five years, or not even five years, two years, you know, like certain people at J Weekly, then you could have done great things and had a blast. I'm glad we're ending on a positive note because a lot of uh, a lot of the topics I bring up on this podcast, you know, it's 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 not that. So uh, I and I want to end on an even more positive note. Uh, and this is a question that I ask every person that comes on the podcast, and that is, who is a journalist? You could also mention multiple journalists. Uh, a news outlet or again multiple news outlets that you think uh is or are uh you know un- underappreciated and need a little love shout out that we can uh pop their work in the description and you know direct folks to well i don't know what kind of editor of sf weekly i would be if i didn't draw your listeners attention to my colleagues because some of these people are truly among the smartest, most dedicated journalists I have ever encountered. And I know that I'm saying this kind of as like a mama bear, you know, praising her cubs, but it happens to be true. And Nula Bishari, who is a reporter for the public press and also a fellow at ProPublica, um, is, you know, we worked together for three years, let's say, and she was the conscience of SF Weekly. I mean, I I drove myself crazy trying to like cover, you know, food and culture and music. And she did everything that was like substantive, everything involving homelessness, um, involving, you know, substance abuse and the way that our public health system fails people. I mean, her versatility and her conscience are a really rare combination. Chris Roberts, who was one of my predecessors as an editor of The Weekly, um, he lives in New York now. He writes, he loves a lot of cannabis. Um, and, you know, he's got a, he's got the best kind of really bad attitude. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think I'm pretty good at, like, taking the piss out of self-important egos. But, like, Chris is the absolute math. Chris, Chris brings receipts. You know what I mean? Like, he just, he... You don't want him writing about you <laughs> unless you're cool. Um, and, you know, he's he's doing a lot of really good freelance work. He's just someone that I would, I would you know, if I see him on Twitter, I will click the story. And then if I'm, like, busy, I'll just save it as open as a tab until I have the chance to read it. Because he's a really, really good pro stylist and a really, really dogged reporter. Great. Okay. Well, I'll definitely be uh, sure to highlight uh, his work. Hey, Thank you so much, Peter Astrid. It's been an absolute pleasure. I just want to say, uh, you know, your background also. P- folks can't really see it, obviously, on the, uh, you know, on an audio-based uh, situation here. But uh, can you describe what this uh, background is for us on your Zoom? So we're speaking on Zoom. Um, I had this because uh, for SF Pride, we had our annual general meeting on Saturday the 11th, which was less than 24 hours after the announcement that the weekly was gone. So we all make a point of having cool, hip, socially relevant Zoom backgrounds. And mine is uh, the only copy of SF Weekly that I have here in my office. It's a cover story that I wrote about a year ago about ghost kitchens. So it's kind of got this like graffiti-esque writing 
of what does it say food machine ghost in the food machine and you know it was a fun story to write it was it was by no means my favorite but visually it's uh symbolic of something that i you know i will be dining out for the rest of my life on the anecdotes generated by my time at sf weekly excellent well hey peter astrid it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much gabe really thank you Thank you for listening to the American Dispatch podcast. To hear more episodes, you can go on any of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about this podcast, go to amdipodcast.substack.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.